praises flow off her tongue day and night without ceasing, God. You are the one worthy of all of our devotion. So we love you this morning and we praise your great name. I don't know how to turn my mic on anymore, but now it's better. I don't know how many of you, when you're reading particular passage of the scriptures, you kind of have the thought of, you know, I wonder what the real story was as far as everything that took place in a particular conversation or a narrative. And what I mean by that is that I've said it often in various ways through the years here, that what we have in the scriptures is exactly what God wanted to be there. Nothing more, nothing less. But obviously not everything that that took place in any of the narratives of the vignettes or anything that we hear, except for in very short spaces, relatively speaking, what we have, again, are are snippets, but again, spiritually uh, God-inspired snippets, so that again, nothing is there that isn't there, that shouldn't be there, and nothing is there that should not be there. You know what I'm saying. At the end of the Gospel of John, John even says that if everything had been written down as far as what Jesus did and what Jesus said, the world itself couldn't contain all the books that would need to be taken. And so, again, when we come to the passage that we're in as we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, I wonder what it would like to have been, you know, that proverbial fly on the wall in listening to Jesus and the full conversations and the yabbats and the what-ifs from the, the disciples and all that were there meeting with Jesus right before he's ready to send them off, sort of to cut those apron strings, to kick them out of the nest, however you want to think about it. Well, we left off the last time that we were together a couple of weeks ago um, in Mark chapter 3 with Jesus having some private time with the men who would be used to turn the world upside down. And remember, that includes Judas Iscariot, who was not a mistake, who was not an oversight. That was by God's design. Think about that sometime. That's not for today's message. Well, Jesus is with them because, again, he's ready to kick them out of the nest, and he's going to send them forth to do what? To preach the good news, that while man is eternally condemned from before birth, Jesus came to provide the only way of escape from sin's condemnation. And so part and parcel, though, of equipping them, not only up to that point, that he would continue to equip them, but part of equipping them to go out and give that message is also that Jesus gave them the authority to cast out demons. The reason being that the realm of demons, which is a real realm, has as their primary goal to keep as many people, who I like to call image bearers of God, from the eternally liberating truth of Jesus Christ. Now, to put it in somewhat theologically crass way, if misery loves company, 
Satan wants all the company he can get to occupy that specially prepared place called hell, which according to the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 25 says, was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so we understand from the scriptures that Satan knows that he's been defeated. And Satan knows that his days are numbered. Remember the comments of the demons in chapter 1 from several weeks ago. Jesus is getting ready to cast them out of the individual that was demonized. And what does the demon say? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And the only satisfaction that Satan can possibly derive before he is bound and incarcerated is to destroy as many human beings as he can because every human being bears the fingerprints of God, what is sometimes called the Imago Dei, the image of God, that impress of God's, of God's fingerprints on everyone that he has brought into existence, not just believers, but every human being that ever has been, is, or will have the fingerprints of God upon them. And because of that, they have and they bear what is called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And Satan hates it. So Jesus sends the disciples out armed with the authority to silence and to remove demonic hindrances, again, so that the good news can go forth. That was review. New material, chapter 3, verse 20 of Mark. And Jesus came home, we presume to Peter's house in actuality, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And again, I just want to reiterate that Mark keeps pounding home the fact that the people attracted to Jesus, this would make more sense in the context of my previous messages on this gospel, because I preach one message built right on the other message, right from the scriptures. You can get those messages online at our website, or you can listen to them. You can cut a CD for yourself, or you can make an MP3 file to listen on your iPod or whatever pod you have. This has been a paid announcement by Faith Evangelical Free Church. But Mark keeps pounding home the fact that people attracted to Jesus with few exceptions are there attracted by him because he has the ability to relieve life's hassles, pains, struggles, and meet every need. You see, even then, to many, Jesus was little more than the magic genie in a lamp found somewhere in time. Rub the magic, the lamp, the genie appears and says, what are your wishes? Boom. If Jesus had started his own church in his day, you say, well, what do you mean if? Now, I'm not talking about what he did with Peter in starting the church universal. But if Jesus, let's say, for some reason, had in his mind to actually establish a physical earthly church with a building, etc., it would be enormous. It would have been gigantic. It would have been the fastest growing, actually the only church, in the place, the region, in the day. And it would have been the first prosperity church in history. Not because of what Jesus said, did, and taught, but because of what people took away from Jesus' miraculous powers as God Almighty incarnate. Clearly, the theme of Mark, as we have seen from the very beginning, is that the crowds were seeking 
the crowds were seeking their best life now instead of the proper pursuit of prosperity. And what was Jesus' response? Back to chapter 1. Under cover of dark, Jesus went out to a forsaken place to pray so that he could be alone with the Father. But what happens? The The annoying disciples are hunting him down, looking for him. Why? Because of the clamoring of the people that are all looking for the magic genie God. And the disciples come and they say, Jesus, just come on, man. You got all these people that you can do all these things and make them a heal and give them all their needs and everything they ever wished for and everything else. Come on, we got to go do it. We got to meet their need. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, let's go somewhere else. Why? So that I can preach the good news. And again, previous messages, I spoke on this at length. Many are called, few are chosen. In the entire Bible, from the book of Genesis right up through the last book of Revelation, it has always been a scant few who understood the glorious wonder of who the Messiah, the Savior, really is. In chapter 3 now, Jesus and his posse get back to Peter's place, and there are so many people there clamoring for his attention for all of the wrong reasons for the most part that he can't or doesn't even take time to nourish his body. Without segue, and that's Mark's fashion as we've talked about in previous messages, verse 21 is really quite unexpected. When Jesus' own people heard of this, they went out to take custody, actually arrest him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. This is such a strange verse that we need to dissect it just a little bit. So who are Jesus' own people referred to here? The phrase is vague in the original language. But if you take it word, from, word for word from the Koine Greek and you give it just a, what's called a, a rather wooden you know, literal translation, they were those who were from Jesus. I'm going to say probably this is a way, perhaps even a colloquialism, of referring to extended family or even beyond extended family to people who knew Jesus growing up and knew him as the Nazarene carpenter. What Mark says towards the end of this chapter, when Jesus' biological family does show up, lends credence to what I just said. So those from him, or as the NAS puts it, Jesus' own people, are struggling with what they see as this transformation, this, this metamorphosis they're seeing of, of the one they knew as a very normal first century Jew into a rock star. And that's not an easy transition. And so a good point to consider here is that when you think about Jesus along the lines of, you remember the little rubber band thing several years ago, WWJD? Right? What would Jesus do? And sometimes, what would Jesus do? I, I don't know about you. I had people remind me, uh, <clears throat> what would Jesus do? And I'd be thinking, yeah, but Jesus was God. <laughs> and I'm not God, in case you didn't notice. Oh, I noticed. Okay. Yeah. Well, the point is, you know, we're, we're tempted to dismiss, dismiss what Jesus would do or how Jesus would behave or think in a particular situation because we say to ourselves, well, yeah, sure, but Jesus, again, was God. 
But listen, if anything the New Testament underscores, it is Jesus' humanity. Which is why Jesus' own people did not fall down prostrate in worship before the King of Kings. Instead, they had a difficult time seeing their Nazarene friend or their cousin or their nephew or their neighbor, a carpenter, as any other young, average, normal Jesus. And so those closest to him see him getting swept up into stardom, and according to some commentators, to the extent that he was ignoring the basics of healthy living, like just taking time for the necessities, like eating and sleeping. And so those who knew him best were concerned for his well-being. Okay, there may be some legitimacy to that, but it is so much more than that. The word the NAS translates for taking custody of him, as I said, actually is used in various different places in the New Testament, meaning to arrest someone. Hey, Jesus never promised respect in hometown cheers for following him. And Mark actually is going to mention this in chapter 6 very specifically. Well, the last part of this verse is even more troubling. When Jesus' own people heard, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses. Ah. Meaning what? Meaning those closest to Jesus thought he was nuts. That's it. So, devoted Christ follower. This is based on many stories that I've heard over my quarter of a century here with you all. Why are you surprised when (laughs) at the family reunions, the anniversary celebrations, the birthday parties, the Easter dinner, the graduations, the Christmas, and all of those other celebrations where family gets together, all of a sudden becomes really awkward when you show up. Ah, <laughs> uh, brother, here comes Cousin Joe, man. You know, the Bible-thumping religious fanatic nut guy, man. Where can we go and hide running into the corner? He's going to be beating us, throwing scriptures at us, right, right. When the Apostle Paul was before Governor Festus in the book of Acts, Festus retorted that Paul was out of his mind. And he adds that your learning, Paul, has made you that way. Can any of you relate to this? There's a young lady right now who's from this church. She's in her first or second year, I mean, second year of college down south at one of the routine colleges of our day, not a so-called Christian college at all. And Leah Edmondson has been on fire for the Lord. And she has, because we've been, we keep in touch quite frequently on Facebook about her troubles and tribulations being at a secular university where you're trying to live for Christ. And she has been ridiculed. She has been scorned by faculty and students and friends alike, including her own roommate. And it continues. And yesterday, as I was making sure it was okay for me to mention her by name and all that, she said that she finishes the job that she's been doing for the summer down there 
in a week or two, and she'll be glad to get out of there because there's no believers there for any kind of support, she said. And before she knew why I was asking her, she said, and they think I'm nuts. And I'm like, boom, exactly. (laughs) Back in the days of Stalin's forced labor camps, do you know what the official charge against the Christians were who were sent to the gulag, which is what those labor camps were called? Since there was no God, since there is no God, according to the foundational Soviet atheism that rules the nation, a belief in God is utterly irrational. And to be utterly irrational is by definition to be crazy. So, ipso facto, you had to be crazy to believe in God. Well, therefore, by definition... By being a Christian, you were out of your mind. And for the good of society, you needed to be removed from society, hence the gulags. Hmm, well, we don't have to worry about such a thing. Because we have grown, we have matured as a society over the years to where now we're not necessarily crazy, we're just mean, wretched, immoral, intolerant, hate-filled people. (laughs) So Jesus' own peeps come out to apprehend him, believing him to be functioning with less than a full deck. And what we'll see in this book is that things don't improve three chapters later when Jesus is back in his very own hometown among his closest friends and his closest relatives. So, as Mark tells it, enter once again the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, on whom Mark shines the penetrating light of truth in verse 22 and 23. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, depending on your translation. And he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. All right, point of understanding the Bible properly. My goal for 25 years and before this church, the church before that, my goal has always been not simply to feed you every week, but to model and to demonstrate how properly to rightly divide the word of truth. So to that end, In this next pericope, which is not as was suggested last Sunday, the word periscope scared S-less. You had to be here. But is a block or a unit of text that is focused on a primary issue. Mark notes that Jesus is going to be dressing down the Pharisees and scribes, his antagonists. And he's going to do so through the use of a parable, which is a literary device, which can be called a word picture, or some might call it just an illustration, but it's using a conveniently made-up story for the purpose of clarifying a far more important or complex point. It's important to know what a parable is so that you don't get wrapped around the axle of specific details in a parable as if you were reading a non-fiction 
historical narrative which is to be taken literally. So you know the old question that I've gotten, I don't know how many times, but do you take the Bible literally or figuratively? Just go, let's go, it's a dumb question because the answer is yes. Huh? Do you take it figuratively or literally? The answer is yes. Take it both. I take it literally where it's intended to be taken literally and figuratively where it's intended to be taken figuratively. And that's not a matter of flipping a coin or making it, you know, picking and choosing the way you want it to be to make it convenient to you. But there are rules of grammar and syntax and language and literature that enable us to do that, which is true of all languages. And if somebody can't buy that, they are absolutely being just disingenuous in their curiosity and in even understanding their own question. Okay, breathe. The charge against Jesus from his enemies is scandalous. And the charges reach actually a whole new level of criticism, which is typical even in today when an enemy is trying to destroy you. If the truth can't bring your enemy down, well, you resort to distortion of the truth. If that doesn't destroy them, you resort to character assassination, what's called an ad hominem, an against-the-person attack. And if that doesn't work, what you do is you fabricate, that means lie, make up, the most outlandish, disgusting thing you can in hopes of winning over the masses who will be so shocked and they will be so outraged at the seriousness of the accusation that they will turn against the one who is in the right. This is today's primary method of winning arguments and votes. And it is from the pit of hell. Satan's name, after all, means the accuser. The scribes and the religious leaders of the day have not been able up to this point to diminish Jesus' growing popularity through theological accusation. You remember the Sabbath controversy earlier in this book. They've not been able to diminish him through false accusation like blasphemy. Oh, so you think you're God. And so they plunge even lower into Satan's realm of dastardliness. And they assert at the end of verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Standing in their midst is the consummately perfect Holy One incarnate. And they declare him to be Satan himself. As Jesus' ministry progresses, it might not have been clear initially whether the scribes were looking for answers in an objective, inquisitive way or whether they are simply looking to set Jesus up. But as we've seen and will continue to see that as the narrative goes on, it becomes more and more obvious that the scribes are not looking for objective truth. They are looking for ways to diminish Jesus' influence with the crowds. They are looking for ways to destroy him. 
as chapter 3 moves forward, the scribes failing to debunk Jesus' authority reach into the fires of hell to align Jesus and Satan as one and the same. The moral of this little story is if someone is not looking for truth-filled answers, which is certainly the spirit of our day, When questions are asked, no matter what and no matter how compelling the answers are, they simply will not be received. Remember two weeks ago, I believe it was when I was in Mark, when I said words cannot change hearts. Only God can. A little illustration that hits close to home and where we are sitting today. When we endeavored to buy this property, we had to work down a long legal line of this and that and the other things and zoning rules and everything else. And it was very clear that the city of Waterville, meaning the city councilors, of which there were six, did not want to sell us the property because they were fear, they were afraid of losing the tax basis from a regular, meaning not a non-for-profit company, buying the property. Well, as that was becoming clearer, I discovered through research that right around that time, and it was only maybe a year or two old, but a fairly new piece of legislation called RELUPA, acronym for the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, authored by none other than their patron saint, Senator Ted Kennedy, the late Ted Kennedy. And what... Kennedy's legislation stated was a municipality could not refuse to sell a property to a not-for-profit organization because of a loss of tax dollars. It was federal law. And everywhere to that point, everywhere without exception, and there weren't many, but there were, there were over 10, every institution that had thus sued where principalities did that as far as they, those cases had gone to that, had all won across the board. So I brought that little bit of information into the city council when they were to decide to let us buy the property or not. I got done with my presentation. City council sitting over here. Bill Lee, who is their paid legal counsel, their lawyer, their, 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 uh, it's called the city solicitor. Bill Lee, fortunately, is a man of integrity. The city councilor, the chairman, asked, Bill, can you tell us that if we deprive them of the right to buy this property that we will be in violation of federal law? Lawyers who are usually not at a loss for words, you know, he said, yes. Get that? He said, yes, you will be in violation of federal law. The chair said, let's take a vote, and the city council voted five to one to deny us the right to buy the property. (laughs) But when God is on your side, hello, here we are. Okay. No matter how compelling, words will not change a heart. Only God can. And he didn't change their hearts. God showed us a creative way to bypass the city council altogether. And he changed the hearts of that particular group of decision makers to unanimously vote for us to buy it. Praise the Lord. In desperation, 
Jesus' enemies being empowered by the principalities of the demonic realm. Think about Ephesians chapter 6. Accuse Jesus of being able to cast out demons because he is the king of demons. And so Jesus answers their charge, but he does so in a parable, which means at this stage of his ministry, Jesus is not trying to convince those who are unconvincible. And I say that on the basis of gospel writer Matthew, where Jesus himself tells us plainly why he uses parables when he does in the presence of the closed-minded. Matthew 13, verses 13 through 16. I, Jesus speaking, speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you'll not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear, and their eyes they're closed. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and they would return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Jesus answers his detractors not to win the unwinnable ones, but to win over all the others, the confused, the ignorant, and those who are seeking truth, who have the Spirit of God at work upon them and within them to give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe. He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. Verse 23, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus' parable is a reasoned approach to refuting the accusations against him. His argument is something like this. Logical point number one. I just cast out demons. They weren't going to dispute that one now. If I have done so by Satan's power, then Satan is working against himself, which is absurd because if it's true, then Satan is bringing down his own destruction. Logical point number two. In order to break into a home, the robber has to first subdue the homeowner. The conclusions to the parables are Jesus can't be Satan or an agent of Satan lest Satan destroy himself. And since Jesus is subduing the strong man by taking authority over him and casting him out. Jesus is clearly more powerful than the strong man who is Satan. Again, remember that the Pharisees were highly educated, and they should have seen the obvious connections in the parable, but again, they cannot because they are spiritually blind. Jesus' pronouncement of sentence then against their accusation is both intense and controversial. 
What follows is a sometimes confused pronouncement of what is referred to as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, the answer to what is the unforgivable sin is found in whatever it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the confusion has arisen because of Mark, what he writes at the end of verse 30, that they are guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Which leads some to believe that any person who has ever attributed a work of God to the work of the devil is forever without redemption condemned to hell. Well, (laughs) True confessions. In my young days as a new believer and unlearned in the whole counsel of the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God, I had done this and not just on an isolated occasion. You see, I used to have a vastly different view of what is sometimes erroneously called the sign gifts in the Bible. I remember telling not just someone on one occasion, but many people for quite a few years while I was becoming more and more learned in the whole counsel of God's word, telling them that speaking in tongues was of the devil. Oh, speaking in tongues is a counterfeit. It was a sign gift. It's passed away, and it is of Satan which sounds in principle quite similar to what the Pharisees accused Jesus of. That is, attributing to the devil what actually was from God. That's exactly what I was doing. So am I to think that I am hopelessly condemned? All right, let's apply what I like to call the get a grip factor. Remember that the primary key to proper biblical understanding is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Which is why we strive here at Faith, right, to read our Bibles through on an annual basis. How's that going for you? (laughs) And you know, the only time I really ask that pretty much is when I'm right on schedule. (laughs) And from what we know, having read our entire Bibles, is that the only unforgivable sin is a lifestyle of committed rejection of the one who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day meaning that the Father who is drawing someone through the wooing and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their life, they, could, they reject the work of God through the Holy Spirit, denying Him 
and rejecting that salvation that is only through the glorious Savior Jesus. So Jesus' pronouncement of the unforgivable sin was not directed at a one-time statement made in ignorance or even a numerous times statement made in ignorance, but rather was directed and is directed at a lifestyle commitment revealing what the heart of the person who is saying such a thing is over the long haul. And even in that, while that person still has breath, they have the opportunity to repent of such a blasphemy. Well, in a rare occurrence of a commentary actually being helpful, expositors, Bible commentary scholar Walter Wessel writes the following. Surely what Jesus is speaking here is not an isolated act, but a settled condition of the soul the result of a long history of repeated and willful acts of sin. And if the person involved cannot be forgiven, it is not so much that God refuses to forgive as it is the sinner refuses to allow him. That's really well put. Quoting the late great Anglican priest of a different era named J.C. Ryle, there is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven. But those who are troubled about it are most unlikely to have committed it. Think about that. So what is the unforgivable sin? It is the perpetual rejection of the drawing of the Holy Spirit unto faith in the one and only Savior of mankind. I want to close by focusing us yet again from the book of Revelation, going toward the very end, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, and I'll have Jim Higgs make his way up here. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. No president, no king, no Supreme Court of the United States, not Satan himself will be able to thwart the purposes of God. And he is orchestrating everything as heinous as it might be. He is in control, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Word. I couldn't let that one go.
All right. Uh, let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we we praise you and we worship you, oh God. We thank you that your word is such truth in our hearts, mind, and soul. Father, what is our relationship with you? Is it all that it needs to be? Whatever we're holding back, we're afraid to bring to you. We lay it at your feet because you covered it at the cross. Father, forgive us for our ways. Help us, O God, to have strength to stand against this tide of ugliness that is being showed to us. We know the end of the book, and we know that you are the winner of all battles. Use us, O God, in the marketplace where we work with our friends. Father, if there's somebody here today, they've found out they don't have a relationship with you, I pray, O God, that they can come to the cross, lay their life down in front of you, repent of their sin, and from this day forward, they're standing in the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.